It's good to be back home with you today. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Sacrament Church and Pastor Preston and Ashley and the saints in Nashville send their love. It was great to be with them last Sunday and to see the work that God is doing among them. We're grateful for them and for their faithfulness. I trust you've been enjoying your summer. And as I understand, in Oklahoma, summer's basically over now, right? Right? No? I don't know. I'm still figuring all of this out. I hope you've been enjoying our series of sermons this summer called The Gospel According To. This morning, I find myself in a very strange place because as a recovering Pentecostal, hi, my name is Mark and I'm a Pentecostal, uh, I found Joel irresistible for pretty obvious reasons. On the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and quite boldly says, this is that uh, spoken by the prophet Joel. And that's the way uh, he said it when he did it. (laughs) We have the DVD set in the lobby for sale afterward (laughs) for your love gift. Uh, Anyway, um, (laughs) I could not stay away from the prophet Joel. And uh, very early on, I, being holy, I said, shoot, I was going to say something else because I realized I am in the deep end of the swimming pool and I don't think I want to be here. So I thought and prayed and worked and talked to myself, think I might have been talking to God. I'm not really quite sure and was saying, well, maybe this was just my idea. Let me find a prophet that's easier to deal with than Joel. I mean, you have to think about it. The words weeping, wailing, mourning, cutting, devouring, swarming, destroying, teeth, and fangs are words that all appear in the first six verses of the book. (laughs) So yes, I cannot wait to bring this to the lovely folks of Sanctuary who have just been hanging for a sermon on judgment. That's my intro. That's the best I've got for you. Okay, you heard it. You heard it, now it's coming. I'm gonna bring it. I don't even bring it, I bring it. Past tense and a present. (laughs) The book of Joel, here's here's what's interesting, and I think this is gonna play in to where we're going today, which is a very strange place. Uh, You may, maybe I should say up front, you may not like this at all, so just, just be prepared. Um, The book of Joel is one of the hardest books in the Bible to date. And by that, I don't mean take out to a movie. I mean to locate in history. When was this book written? Uh, Scholars range from as far as the 9th century BC all the way up to the 2nd century BC. So somewhere in that 700-year window where some stuff like exiles and falling and rising of kingdoms takes place. I tend to think, though, that one scholar I read was correct when he says that Joel intentionally keeps us in the dark as to when he's writing. You might remember, I think I might even have my notes right in here, right? Yeah. When we did the gospel according to Haggai, like Haggai tells you in the opening, I started on September 8th. It was in this year. And I did this for about three months or so. 
Like he, we have such specific terms. And he's not the only prophet who does this. Sometimes it's strictly by virtue of the fact that they'll say uh, when so-and-so was ruling. And we can sort of decipher when a particular prophet was working. Joel, we're clueless. But I think one scholar has it right in that to the extent that we really can't place the time Joel's prophesying, it's because Joel's prophecy is for all times. In other words, the lack of a specific time frame gives us a flexibility in the way that we apply this text, in the way that we understand this text. It's a, it's a book that is a favorite among end times preachers and writers. Um, you may be familiar with them and you may have their books. And uh, it's, it's a book that's used many times to bring up themes of rapture and Armageddon and tribulation and The day of the Lord is a theme that comes up. It's a specific term that comes up throughout the book. So when I said you're not going to like the sermon, you may not like it because that's not where I'm going to go today. I'm not going to get you ready for the rapture, the antichrist, or the tribulation, or the 144,000, or any microchips in your hands or forehead. And I, don't, I, I say that to be funny, not to be disrespectful. But the fact is, when I sat down and read, I've read Joel, I don't know how many times, like I said, I'm a recovering, I like to call myself a neo-Pentecostal, but I'm, I mean, this is a book we read. We know this book, and it turns out we don't know it at all. At least I didn't. Because when you read Joel closely, you find out he didn't go to school. Because he didn't learn how to conjugate verbs. He's talking in the present, he's talking in the past, he's talking in the future, all in the same conversation. But again, like the lack of a specific date, I think this is intentional. Because while Joel is apocalyptic, I do not think it's predictive. And on that, we may disagree. You may want to gather your things and walk out now. Maybe, you know what, I'm going to pray. How about we pray? Let's pray for me this morning. Father, we love you this morning. So grateful for the scriptures that we have translated in our own language. Even more grateful for your spirit who's breathed out and inspired these scriptures, who indwells us, is present among us this morning. And so we ask that by your grace, your spirit would bring us to places and conclusions and understandings we otherwise wouldn't reach on our own and do so in a way that challenges us, edifies us, and accomplishes your purpose for this gathering and the purposes that you have for this gathering. And we ask all of this through Jesus Christ and everybody said, amen. I'm encouraged by that amen this morning. Joel, in some way, if we were to sort of break down the book, has three movements or three themes. And these I want you to remember because this is how the sermon's gonna be structured. Lament, salvation, and judgment, kind of in that order. Lament, salvation, and judgment. Which even there, chapter one going into chapter two, and then chapter two going into chapter three, the order doesn't, doesn't it seem like judgment should come, and then we lament over the judgment, and then we're saved from the judgment. Like there's a certain logic there. Lamenting first, and then salvation coming, and then judgment being pronounced is a very awkward juxtaposition. But let's start with this idea of lament. If, now, we're gonna give the tech team a pass. I was, 
Can I tell you a little bit too much about me? Is that all right? I'll do this real quickly. I wrestled with this joker all week long. I was up till 12.30 last night and back at it at 6.30 this morning. Uh, not to mention the work during the week. So the tech team doesn't have verses. So if you're using an app, you can join me in Joel 1. If you're cracking open a Bible, you can flip through and find wherever you want to locate Joel. <laughs> That's in the really turn a page and you covered three books section of the Bible. Um, and notice what happens here. The lament begins, he doesn't waste any time. He's got a better intro than me. It's just one line and he's off to the races. And he says in verse two, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust, by the way, I want to know the hopping locust because they sound fun and friendly to the rest of these guys. What they left behind, the destroying locust has eaten. This is the message you're supposed to give to your children, your grandchildren, and your posterity. That's lovely. <sighs> so to the elders, we have the inheritance that I'm giving you is a message. You thought I would be giving you a field filled with crops. You thought I'd be giving you a productive farm. All I'm giving you is a message. We are on the back end of judgment and destruction here, and all I have to give you are these words. It's all gone. Happy book. Let's go to the second dimension of lament here, to the consumers, also known as drunkards. Verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine. For it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Notice the tense here. A nation has come up against my land powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth, for the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord." Okay, it's getting no better. What's interesting is in this lament, there is a call that sits underneath all of this, a call to spiritual self-awareness. In other words, notice what Joel is not saying. Joel is not saying, get your act together or God is about to wreck y'all. That's not what he says. He basically says in verse 5, you have managed to drink yourself to sleep while everything has fallen apart. He basically says, while you're napping, you've lost your future. While you've been busy consuming sweet wine, the locusts have come in and taken everything and armies have walked all over you and it's gone. This is incredibly disturbing. Like I said, it was a rough week preparing the sermon because I began to think about myself and say, Mark, are you capable of living, let's, let's, sleeping through the judgment of God? 
I'm a pretty good sleeper. And my wife said, yeah. You can rob my house tonight. You won't deal with me. You'll deal with my wife and my dog licking you on the mouth. That's what you'll deal with. Because if anybody's going to sleep through the judgment of God, it's me. I don't even need to drink anything. I'm that annoying person who lays down and within how many breaths is it? Three or four breaths, the snoring begins. It's kind of scary though, isn't it? To think that we could be the people of God, possessors or participants in a covenant. And because, listen, we are so busy consuming spiritual goods and services, we have been lulled into a state of unawareness. In other words, I'm glad that you're here. Bring a friend next Sunday. That would be awesome. That wasn't a joke, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm glad that you're here, but the fact is we can go to church week in and week out and be sound asleep to what God has been doing. And I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be in the spiritual what I am in the natural, and that is a sound sleeper who's looking for an excuse to fall out, not under the power of the Holy Spirit, but simply under the pleasures of rest. Notice that this judgment affects children. One of the things I love and appreciate about sanctuary is all of our young families, all of the families that are just surrounded about the ankles with these lovely young children, on Sunday mornings, we'll have 200 people in this room and 100 kids in a thriving youth uh, kids ministry downstairs. Incredible, wonderful. This should have our ear, shouldn't it? God's saying, this affects your kids and your grandkids. And this last section is of this initial lament in verse 11. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. He's spoken to the elders, he's spoken to the drinkers, the consumers, and now he's speaking to the producers, to the farmers. And what does he say? He says at the end of verse 11, be ashamed because the harvest of the field has perished. The harvest. He doesn't necessarily talk about the grain. He talks about the harvest. Harvest is a noun and a verb. In other words, what he's saying is the producers have lost their purpose. There's no point to being a farmer if there's nothing to harvest. This is the lament. The lament is that multiple generations are suffering loss. The lament is that in the midst of blessing, we can be lulled to sleep and suffer from deep unawareness of what God is doing and the ways in which our families are suffering. We can sit in church every Sunday and think of ourselves as productive people, as farmers, as people who are diligent people, and all the while it's gone, it's gone, it's gone, and he is trying to get their attention. Joel has been stirred up and he's trying to stir up God's people. May we be stirred up this morning. And this lament gets intensified because in verse 15, he says what? The day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. What's interesting is that in verse 15, he speaks of the day of the Lord as something that is near and something that is coming. And in verse 16, he immediately goes back to speaking as if it's already happened. The food is cut off. The joy and the gladness is gone. 
This is the sort of strange, undulating ground that you stand on when you walk into Joel. He calls for an anticipation of this day that is near, this day that is coming, while speaking of it as if it's come. He says, the temple has gone quiet. There's no joy in the temple. He says, the barn is lonely. There's no grain. There's no activity. He even goes so far as to say that the animals are perplexed. We're anticipating it, but it seems like it's come. And I'm thinking on some level that this sort of strange speaking out of both sides of his mouth is pointing to the fact that the day of the Lord is exactly that. It is the day of the Lord. It is not our day. In other words, it cannot be handled, it cannot be predicted, and it cannot be situated where we want to situate it. It will transcend our tense of future, past, or present. The day of the Lord is a strange and awesome thing. Dr. Ricky Moore, who you've probably been acquainted with through people like Jonathan Martin and Chris Green, has written extensively on the book of Joel. And the day of the Lord was a theme that I was most out of my element, most uncomfortable with. Because there's, a, there's an easy way out with the day of the Lord, and that is to try and transform the day of the Lord into something that it looks bad, but it's really good. Right? And I don't want to be clever. I don't want to take the day of the Lord that is dreadful and somehow spin it with uh, crazy rhetoric and logic so that you walk out of here thinking, oh, the day of the Lord is great, it's awesome. As a matter of fact, Amos warns people when he says, you should be ashamed of yourself for anticipating and just rejoicing in the day of the Lord. But the flip side of that coin is I can't come in here and act like the day of the Lord somehow is an awful thing in the way we think of awfulness because it's the day of the Lord and he is good and his mercy endures forever. So Ricky Moore I asked him to put this on the screen because it's, forgive the long quote, but he does this so much better. I said to Chris, I'm going to just, I'm going to read his notes for the whole sermon. I almost did that, but I was cheating. I suspect that Joel is trying to get our eyes to see something here that we are not accustomed to seeing, namely that Yahweh's day is not so easily situated on the map of our days so that we can fit it somewhere in our temporal framework of past, present, or future this is the way we have our days. But Joel knows that, why we, that we are no longer talking about our days. This is all about Yahweh's day, a day that will not submit to our having because it is not ours, not of us. It consumes not only our space, but also our time, even our very sense of time, so that what is already and what is not yet are not nearly as separable and distinct as we are used to having them. Joel knows that this is the day that has us. Indeed, it consumes us. Hence, we cannot stand over against it to measure it and assign it from the standpoint of our now to our then. This is the day that swallows our standpoint and altogether devours both our already and our not yet. So there's that. This is the day. We should have sang that to open the service this morning. Fred Hammond version. <laughs> this is the day 
that consumes all of our days and consumes us. Can I reference us back to the prophet Moses who in Deuteronomy 24 and verse 4 reminds the people of God that our God is a consuming fire. The day of the Lord is about bringing an end to all that is broken, all that is sinful, all that transgresses his intentions for creation and humanity. The day of the Lord recognizes reality for what it is. It's messed up. The day of the Lord says, I will consume that. I will take all of that up into myself. Here we have, if you will, this theme of Good Friday being a good day. When I was a kid, I could never understand why do we call Good Friday good? Because it's awful, but yet we know it's good. Am I right? It's awful, but we celebrate it in some strange way, correct? Why? Because in that awfulness, we see goodness. In that destruction of Jesus of Nazareth, we see the emergence of the Son of God. In the destruction of his flesh, our flesh finds hope. Because death stops being the last word and it starts being a doorway into something supernatural and glorious called resurrection. We see here, we start Joel on Holy Saturday. We start Joel with the disciples and the women lamenting what has been lost through the judgment of Good Friday. But fortunately, Joel moves us into salvation. You see, chapter 2 is where we find God's first direct address. If you'll look at verse 12, up until now, God has been speaking through Joel. In verse 12, God starts speaking. What does he say? Yet even now. Friends, if you are in a bad spot, if you have been unfaithful, if you've struggled, if you feel like everything in your life is falling apart, your marriage, your finances, your health, please mark, underline, highlight, bookmark, whatever it is you do with what's in front of you, this verse, yet even now. Three powerful words to the person who's in distress. Three powerful words to the person who's tempted to give up hope. Yet even now, after the locusts have done their worst, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Look at this. Rend your hearts and not your garments. God is saying that the first step towards salvation is one in which we are honest, we are transparent, we are vulnerable, and it's not a show, it's an authentic bearing of the soul. You rip open your heart what the heart is full of, the mouth speaks. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. God is saying, I am not concerned in merely having you manage your sin. I want to give you a new heart. This is where salvation begins. This is where we discover that God is not only a, good, a, a consuming fire. God is also the good Samaritan. You remember when the Good Samaritan finds the Jew who's been beaten and robbed and left for dead. What does it say? It says that he brought forth two things, oil and wine. The implication would be, I don't think it's a stretch to say, that when he brings this wounded 
broken man to the end, and he leaves money to take care of him. Part of that is feeding him. The very things that Israel has lost were signs of their covenant. Grain and wine and oil. The very things that the Good Samaritan provides are grain and wine and oil. And the very salvation that God restores to Israel is grain and wine and oil. What does it say? In verse 18 of chapter 2, the Lord was jealous for his land, had pity on his people. And he says, behold, I am sending you the very things that you've lost. What we need to remember this morning, though, is just like the lament is increased, intensified, and expanded, the salvation is increased, intensified, and expanded because God is not just looking to restore what's been lost. There are some very uh, well-known passages in Joel, not just the pouring out of the Spirit. You may have heard, if you grew up in my kind of church, you may have heard talk about the former and the latter rain coming together. Anybody? Can we just wave a hanky at me and let me know you heard those verses in church? Right? How about this one? I will restore what the locust has eaten. Come on, son. That's when you start to get a little happy in church right there. But here's the thing that's incredible about God's salvation is God's salvation is not just the restoration sort of leveling back up to zero. God's salvation goes above and beyond. It goes to places we could never anticipate or predict. God's salvation, he says, you would think that by saving you, I'm just going to hit reset. I'm not just going to hit reset. Sorry, I'm getting a little preachy right now. I feel my hand. I'm going to pull it all back in. I'll, I'll preach the rest of the sermon like this. <laughs> he said, I'm not just going to bring you back to zero. I'm not just going to restore what you've lost. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. But notice the way he's going to pour out his spirit. You might want to get an amen ready to feel a little bit of Pentecostal on Joel Day. Because it's sons and daughters. I grew up in a very traditional context. A context in which women were not in ministry. And it's interesting, the text that the Lord used to change my mind was this text. God will use many different things. He'll use people, he'll use stories, experiences. I talked to somebody else and their, one, their text was Galatians. In Christ there is neither male nor female. That didn't do it for me. I wasn't convinced. This was the text that did it for me because what God is saying is that in his salvation, he is in a revolutionary way going to transcend social barriers. The spirit is not just being poured out, it's being poured out on all flesh. It's poured out in ways that go against the norms that would have kept daughters out of the equation. It's coming forth in a way that would have normally the old and the young would have been separated and they are brought together because the Spirit is being poured out in ways that old men dream dreams and young men see visions. Age gaps closed. And of course, in verse 29, male and female servants, even them. He's transcending the class gaps that would exist this is revolutionary rescue. This is dramatic and unexpected salvation. And it brings us to this strange verse. Verse 32 was what no one would have expected. 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. It's an odd way to go into this last theme of judgment. I've intentionally made this the shortest part of the sermon. This judgment begins, it says in verse 3, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, for behold, in those days and at that time, what days and what time? The days when the Spirit is being poured out on all flesh. The days in which whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In those days, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and then in the same way that the priests gathered people together for a holy convocation, God says he's going to gather together the nations of the earth into this nondescript valley of Jehoshaphat. Not a geographical place. I'm going to bring them all together and judgment will be issued. This is when we suddenly find God inviting the nations to beat their plowshares into swords. Unlike Micah, who says, beat your swords into plowshares. This is the reversal of that. And again, the language is haunting. Now we suddenly see that the nations of the earth might become subject to the day of the Lord. They might become subject to the all-consuming, awful day of God. But notice where they are in verse 14. They are in the valley of decision. This is a beautiful thought that even in God's judgment, we have the possibility of mercy. Even in God's judgment, we see God stepping in. In verse 14 of chapter 2, the question is asked, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Can I encourage you this morning, in the midst of all the teeth and all the fangs and all the destruction, that yet even now, when judgment is looming, you're still in a valley of decision. And the decision is not yours, the decision is God's. I've always been taught that the valley of decision is where I'm empowered to determine my own destiny. When in fact, the valley of decision is God's decision because it's God's day and it's God's valley. It's a place that means decision. God decides. Jehoshaphat. See, this is news of hope for everyone that was just told they can call on the name of the Lord. Everyone who was just told they have a chance of salvation, they now find themselves in a valley where God will choose for them. And so we respond to Joel with praise, with shouts of praise, because this God is our just yet merciful and restoring God. But we also respond with prophecy because we have received the Spirit. The Spirit's been poured on us. And so we prophesy as bearers of God's Spirit. We now make this revolutionary, restoring God known in the earth. We speak on His behalf as His presence in the earth. Isn't it interesting? Jesus said famously, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Remember that verse? I feel like as I was reading Joel, as I was seeing the Father, I was seeing Jesus. Not drunk, but choosing to drink the cup of wrath. I saw Jesus, not asleep, but calling his disciples to stay awake with him. I see Jesus not having to be told to lament, but already in great distress in Gethsemane. I see Jesus experiencing the true day of the Lord, Good Friday, the day that consumes all other days, a day of darkness and smoke. I see Jesus revealing the day of the Lord as the way to the Sabbath, the day of the Lord as the pathway to resurrection. I see Jesus revealing that in that day, sweet wine flows to us. I see Jesus revealing that those who least expect it will be invited to the feast. And this is the gospel according to Joel. Dream children, dream slaves. Fear nothing, anyone. When God throws a party, he serves the best wine last. Let's bow our heads together. Father, I pray for all of us in this room this morning. If we have grown sleepy, if we have had our senses dulled by the busyness of life, by the cares of this world, Father, I pray that this morning somehow your Holy Spirit would wake us up. Make us alert. Make us sober to realize our faith is not a decoration or an accessory to a good life. Our faith is not a way to be better people. Help us realize, O oh God, that you have called us into an all-consuming love relationship with you. A relationship between master and student to learn how to be like you. We're so grateful today that you're a God of mercy. And that even as you pour out your wrath, it is ultimately pointing to your glory inhabiting your people. Bless your people, I pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen.